says, now I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked and behold a white horse. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. And another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. And the people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. And then he opened the third seal, and I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. And so I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard the voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. And he opened the fourth seal. And I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. So I looked and behold, a pale horse and the name of him who sat on it was death. And Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Aren't you glad you came to church? <laughs> Father, we humbly ask as we open the word of God once again as an act of worship, Lord, we've sang, we've prayed, we've fellowshiped, and as always, we want to continue in our worship now by giving our attention to your spirit-inspired word that you might write your will once again on the fleshly tablet of our hearts. So we ask, Lord, prepare us accordingly and speak by your Holy Spirit's ministry now through what you have already spoken within your written word. And we ask this together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, when it is possible, I think it's very nice to be able to kind of ease your way into something. Yet many of us know the reality is that sometimes change and even major change comes abruptly, very quickly, very suddenly, very unexpectedly, radical changes can come. And such will be the case, as we see in God's word, when the righteous judgment of God is executed upon the world. It's not something that will be eased into. It's something that will come very abruptly. When God determines that the day of man's rebellion and their rejection of his son Jesus Christ offered to them as Savior has reached the full measure, if you would, of God's loving, patient tolerance, when God interrupts human history and then brings the day of the Lord when the day of man is over, and then it is the Lord's day where Jesus will remove the righteous, his saints, you and I, from this earth up into heaven, and the just wrath of the Lamb will come suddenly and unexpectedly in severe judgment upon the rest of humanity remaining left behind on this earth. And that is what we now begin to transition into in chapter 6, which will take us all the way through till chapter 18. If you look down at the last verse of chapter 6 with me, notice it tells us this cry, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now, after chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation that we saw, which described the conditions of the church age, we then saw the unit in chapters 4 and 5, which began to describe, really, the removal of the church from the saints off of this, for the saints off of this planet up into the heavens, often what we refer to as the rapture, the catching away of the saints. Remember, chapter 4 began, John said, I saw a door open in heaven, and there was a voice like a trumpet saying, come up here, and I will show you things which must shortly take place after this. And John was instantaneously transported up into the heavenly realm, and he was shown the worship celebration there in chapters 4 and 5, at God's throne in heaven, and we, in a sense, got a chance to peek and see kind of previews of coming attractions. 
that you and I will one day be participating in there in the heavenly throne, worshiping, engaging together with others who we know and love, who've already got off the exit ramp before us and entered into the heavenly realm and who are already there worshiping around the throne of God. In chapter 5, we saw there in the right hand of God the Father who sat on the throne, remember, a scroll. And it said that in the right hand of the Father, there was this scroll written within and without, and it had seven seals. And the question erupted loudly in heaven, who is worthy to take the scroll and to open the seals? To which ultimately the answer came that there was one, only one, qualified and authorized to open those seals on the scroll and to execute or to carry out what was described within that scroll. And that was, remember, the lion of the tribe of Judah who had prevailed, often as well as even in that scene referred to as the Lamb of God simultaneously who's taken away the sin of the world. And we know, of course, none other than our Lord Jesus the conquering lion of the tribe of Judah, and the way that he conquered was becoming the lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world, and regaining back everything that humanity lost in his eternal victory and redemption. And he alone is worthy to open now the seals of this scroll and to begin to execute the things written there within. And when Jesus then came forward in chapter 5, verse 7, and took the scroll out of the right hand of the Father who sat on the throne, when Jesus grabbed the scroll, he's about to open it. Remember, we saw worship erupted in heaven. And there was this outburst of worship over Jesus coming forward to take the scroll. Yet sadly, upon the earth, there's now going to come, as we're going to see, an outbreak of horrible judgments of severe judgment upon those who are left behind because of rejecting Christ and living wickedly in their rebellion. Look with me back in our text in verse 1. It begins by telling us now, as Jesus has taken the scroll, John says, verse 1 of chapter 6, Now I saw when the Lamb, our Lord Jesus Christ, opened one of the seals. So at this point, Jesus now begins to open, we'll see one by one, the seven seals. In the seventh seal, then we'll see after the seven seals come seven bowls, seven trumpets. We'll see this progress onward as we go. But first he begins one at a time to open these seals. And with each seal being opened, we see there's kind of a successive judgment that is executed as each seal is open. So as Jesus now begins to open these seven seals, it will initiate the onset or the fulfillment of this prescribed seven-year period that we often know and refer to as the time of the tribulation or the tribulation period in which God's wrath will come upon the Christ-rejecting world, those left behind on the earth because of their wickedness and their refusal to embrace Jesus Christ when he removed his saints from the earth into heaven. And the tribulation, we often find it referred to as well in other terms. In the Old Testament, it's often referred to as the time of Jacob's trouble. It's also referred as a time of the 70th week. Often people say the 70th week of Daniel because that's where it stems from, Daniel 9. But in a sense, it's more almost accurately the 70th week of Israel because it is one final seven-year period where God also will be uniquely working among the nation of Israel, accomplishing a final seven-year period with them as his chosen people. Isaiah 34 also refers to it as the indignation of the Lord against all nations. So it also will be a time when God is punishing all of humanity for their rejection and their wickedness. Jesus referred to it as the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world. And this seven-year period of tribulation is the most documented and described period of history in the entire Bible. In fact, as I just referenced earlier, from chapter 6 all the way through to chapter 18, even into chapter 19 somewhat, when Jesus returns, we have a description of this seven-year period of history where the tribulation period is taking place upon this earth. And understand, it is a time of God's righteous judgment and punishment that has kind of come to pass in a way like no other time in human history. 
And let me say as a disclaimer, as I say that, please understand, this is not the Lord just angrily seeking revenge because his temper has just gone off the scales and now he is just an angry revenge punishing humanity because he just can't take the offense any longer. Instead, this is the just punishment of a righteous and a holy God who has come to a place where his spirit can no longer strive with man forever. And now he must, to maintain his justice and righteousness, he must properly punish as a just good judge and execute the sentence against humanity for their crimes and their offenses in a sense of generation after generation of rejecting Christ and living wickedly against God. Now, let me just say this morning as we look at these things, if you are a believer, I do not believe, you are free to disagree. I do not believe on my biblical study of many years personally that chapters 6 through 18 and what's described of the tribulation period is a part of our future. I do not believe that God intends, after punishing Jesus sufficiently, who the Bible teaches bore the wrath of God against the sin of the world for himself, upon himself, so that you and I could escape the wrath of God, that we are going to have to a second time suffer through the wrath of God poured out upon this earth. To me, that does not even make logical sense. When you're telling me as a Christian, if I have to suffer through the wrath of God, you're telling me that what Jesus did wasn't sufficient. I have a real hard time with that. And that's just one little piece of why I believe that. So I believe that we do not see anywhere in chapter 6 through 18, even as we see it, the church even referenced as being on the earth during this time. I find the church safely tucked away in heaven, being excused from such because God is dealing with those who have refused to embrace Jesus' offer to be rescued from the wrath of God through him. And therefore, now they must bear the wrath of God against their sin for refusal of Christ. It makes sense. I don't see the church even mentioned again until in Revelation 19, Jesus is coming back at his second coming, and you and I are then coming back with him in our glorified bodies, having been with him for those seven years, safely tucked away, coming back as he ultimately overthrows his enemies and sets up his kingdom. Now, that being said, chapters 6 through 18 is a reality of what every unsaved soul still at this moment has prescribed for their future if they continue to refuse Jesus Christ. And please understand if you're here this morning, as hard as it is to hear such things described there, please know it is an act of God's love that in kindness in advance, God said, if you refuse my son, this is your future. These are things that will come to pass on those who are left behind on this earth when the church is removed. Now we see the tribulation period begin with the breaking of these seals, this morning we look at these first four seals that are opened by Jesus, and with each seal being broken, you notice in our reading, we saw that there are this riding forth of these four horsemen. We often refer to them as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And generically, as you saw in our just cursory reading of the text, those first four horses represent deception, killing, either through murder or warfare, famine, thirdly, or lack of food, economic collapse, and then pestilence, disease. And what's interesting is in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, as Jesus himself, who's going to bring to pass these things, as the only one who can do such, authorized, as he outlines the signs of the times that are about to come to pass, Jesus, in his description of such, uses the exact same general topics and in the exact same sequence as we find in these first four seals and these first four horsemen riding forth. Jesus warns of deception, then war and death, then of famines, and then of pestilence. Listen to Matthew 24. It says, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, his disciples came to him privately and they asked him, tell us, when or what, excuse me, what will be the signs of your coming in the end of the age to which Jesus answered? Listen to the parallel. Take heed that no one deceives you, 
For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. There's the first thing, deception. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There you have bloodshed and warfare and men killing themselves on the planet. And there will be famines. There again, economic collapse, starvation, lack of food. There's our third thing. And then again, pestilences, deadly diseases, sickness and illness. And Jesus said, all these things are the beginning of sorrows. The language is literally of labor pains. The sorrow of a woman going through the laboring process and the painful difficulty. So right now, do we see these things that I just mentioned as the Bible describes? Are they already happening on the earth? Absolutely. They're already taking place on the earth. But Jesus says these are the beginning of a laboring process that has begun and will progress until it comes to its full-term delivery in the tribulation period. But right now, they're like labor pains. Now, again, I say as a very strong disclaimer, I observed the process three times. Didn't participate, didn't do any of the work. I just tried to stay out of the way, not get in trouble, and be as supportive as possible as my wife went through that process three times. But what I was able to observe from the labor process is a few things. First of all, the labor pains come with increased frequency. That is, they come more frequent, more frequent, and frequent, more frequent, more frequent, and as it progresses, they get closer together and there are less gaps of time between such, leading up to delivery. As well as labor pains get more intense when they come. So there's an increase of frequency of the laboring pains and it gets more intense, it's more severe and more severe leading up to the delivery. And the other thing I could tell you this is once the labor process starts, you can't stop it. It's coming. You can't escape the process. It is going to come to pass. And Jesus said, these things are like the laboring pains. So right now, do we see deception on the earth? Most certainly. Do we see political unrest and war and violence and murder and economic problems and, and food shortage issues and disease and sickness? Absolutely, it's all there. But understand, these things that we're even seeing now, folks, are the restrained version, the restrained version of those things. It will ultimately come to pass in its fullest sense. We know it's the restrained version because 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us that the presence of the Holy Spirit at work among the church is the restraining force of God keeping these things from coming to pass in their full severity. So you and I still being here on this planet and the Holy Spirit working through our lives as Christians, the Bible says, 2 Thessalonians 2, we are, as God's people, as the Spirit works among the church, that that's the restraining influence, the salt and the light, and our presence still being here, and God mercifully not wanting us to bear the full brunt of such horrific things. We are the restraining thing holding back these things from, in a sense, taking off in full severity. No matter how bad it is or no matter how bad it gets regarding those things, understand, this is just the restrained version. This is just God holding back the severity. Now, let me just say in light of that, before we move on, if this is the restrained version of deception and barbaric cruelty and murder and bloodshed and, and I mean, and all these, if, if this is the restrained version as we're watching the world unraveling more and more, can you imagine what it will be like when the restraint is taken away? And the fullness is allowed to come to pass when God no longer is holding back because he finally removes his people and the work of his spirit's ministry through the church is removed. And then God casts off all restraints and he lets the full brunt of man's evil and corruption come to pass in full delivery. Boy, that's going to be a horrific, horrific time. So John says here, I watched as he opened the first seal, verse 1, and he says, and I heard... One of the four living creatures, now we know this is a reference to the angelic beings, as we've already seen, one of the angels saying with a voice like thunder, come 
and see. So this loud angelic voice says, come forward and see now what will take place once that first seal is broken and the time of the tribulation begins. And then he describes the result of opening the first seal. He says, verse two, and I looked and behold a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. So John says, as the first seal was opened, a rider came forth, notice, riding on a white horse. Now let's identify first this rider. According to biblical chronology of end time events, after the church is removed and the Holy Spirit's powerful ministry, in a sense, has been taken away from the restraining influence it's been accomplishing, that means that restraining force against strong deception and delusion is going to be removed. And according again to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it tells us there that that is the time when the Antichrist, the master of deception, is going to then emerge upon the world scene. And we'll talk more about the Antichrist in a moment, but let me first address a misconception that I believe at times exists where some believe, looking at verse 2, that verse 2 is describing there actually Jesus himself returning back to the earth. And the primary reason some want to say in verse 2, that's a reference to Jesus riding on this white horse, is of course Revelation chapter 19 tells us at the second coming of Jesus that he is riding on a white horse. Now let me just briefly address how I see many problems with verse 2 being a description of Jesus just because it describes there him on a white horse. First of all, if Jesus is the one in heaven, as we've already seen contextually in our study in Revelation, who's prevailed and who's the only one who can open all seven seals, how can Jesus be in heaven opening all seven seals if he's already riding to the earth after the first seal? Doesn't make sense. That doesn't align. As well as in comparison, Revelation 19 where Jesus is described there coming back on a white horse, in that scene, Jesus has a sword in his hand. Notice this rider doesn't have a sword. This rider has a bow, and he doesn't even have any arrows. He just has a bow. As well, in Revelation 19, Jesus there on a white horse is wearing, it says, many crowns. And the Greek term is the diadem for the, the word crowns, and that's a reference to a golden crown of a ruler who has inherent power in his rulership. This reference here to a rider in verse 2, he's only wearing one crown, not many crowns, just one crown, and that crown was given to him. It wasn't inherited as a ruler. It was a crown given to him, and it's the Greek term Stephanos for crown, which refers to the olive branch, which was a temporary crown-like reef they would give to a victor after they prevailed in a sporting event, and it did not last long-term. It was a temporary crown, if you would. Finally, Jesus, when he's returning in Revelation 19 on a white horse, he's followed by the saints, and he brings a glorious kingdom as the result of him coming. This rider on the white horse, his friends, as we read, are things like killing, famine, death, and Hades. He brings a bunch of misery on the earth. So very clearly, this is not Jesus Christ. This is the emergence of the Antichrist onto the scene. The fact that he's on a white horse only further indicates this is a time of unrestrained deception and confusion. And let me put this in a way that helps illustrate it. Think about it. If you watched old cowboy movies, who normally rides in on the white horses? The good guys, right? He's on a white horse, and he's got a white cowboy hat. He must be a good guy. He's come to save the town. Well, the Antichrist is demonically inspired by the father of lies, Satan himself, so he's the supreme imposter. That's why he's coming back in a way. The white horse represents that he's coming with deception. He'll come on a white horse. The idea is presentable, persuasive. He's going to come as an anti, a pseudo opposite of Christ. He wants to represent himself as a savior. 
He wants to present himself in a way where people would gladly welcome him as the savior for the world at that time because the good guys always come looking like good guys. It's a way he wants to mislead the world and present himself as a solution to the problems and the fixer of all global issues. 2 Thessalonians 2 describes him this way. It says, now you know what is restraining, as we've talked about, that he, that is the man of sin, the Antichrist, may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he, referring now to the spirit within the church, who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way and then the lawless one will be revealed. And then it goes on to tell us the coming of the lawless one, a reference to the Antichrist, listen, is an according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. So notice the Bible says the Antichrist will be revealed, he'll come forth, but when he comes forth, it's with the working and the power of Satan with all types of unrighteous deception, signs, lying wonders, so that he might deceive those who are upon the earth. Notice, satanic deception, even utilizing signs and wonders. Again, we need to always recognize, is Satan able to bring to pass a supernatural sign, wonder, a miraculous thing? You better believe it. He's a supernatural being. Oh, but it seems so supernatural, and I saw a light, and, and, and God says, listen, just because something supernatural happens does not mean it's from God. That's why we have to know the Word of God to be able to decipher and to discern the difference, and the safest thing you and I can do as deception increases and ultimately leads up to the day that the greatest deceiver, the Antichrist, comes on the scene is to be able to decipher the difference and what spirit is of God and what is of an unclean demonic spirit that may be, like the Bible says of Satan, who masquerades himself even as an angel of light. Again, the Satan, understand, he, he's not foolish. He's very wise and strategic. And so the Antichrist is not going to come on a dark horse with a black hat and be offering 666 tattoos for free. <laughs> he's going to come in a way that he presents himself as a global deceiver for all of the earth he's going to ride in on a white horse and it says notice that he's going to have a bow what's interesting he has a bow but no arrows and i think that's an indication of how he will conquer he's not going to conquer through force or warfare he's got a bow with no arrows meaning he's a man of peace so the way he conquers and overcomes is a masterful ability to coordinate and convince all nations to embrace global peace. Listen, we can bring harmony on the earth. Everyone has got to get along, and, and he's going to use persuasive ideas and presentation, and he will gain world dominance. It says there in verse 2 that a crown, a temporary crown, will be given to him. That is, desperate people will put him into a place of high authority, of global rulership, to the place where that crown is actually given to him as a place of global rulership. The Bible in Daniel 2 and 7 seems to indicate that he will arise out of what is a revived Roman Empire, which seems to be describing someone of European origin in the European area, and all other rulers and nations will give him this place of global rulership and power because of how he presents himself. And he will go forth, it says, conquering humanity by powerful deception, taking control of things. He'll be able to usher in a one-world government with him, of course, as the supreme ruler because he seems so politically qualified. So he's going to come forth as this long-awaited savior who can solve world problems globally. And everyone is being primed for this. Someone who can just finally fix all of these problems on the earth. So understand, the Antichrist is going to be an individual who is going to be smooth and suave. He's going to be an eloquent speaker. He's going to be someone that has political savvy, 
be able to establish and orchestrate a one-world global economy with a one-world currency, someone who is able to establish, the Bible says, even a one-world religion that finally suits everyone of all faiths. Hey, this, 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 this is a faith for everyone. And somehow he will establish such where everyone is able to kind of rally together. He'll be an excellent negotiator with leadership ability to be winsome and to kind of win people over. But he will be the greatest imposter in human history to be able to deceive people. And once in control, then his demonic intentions will be unleashed upon humanity. And it appears that he will come at a time, and it makes sense why humanity will embrace him, it appears he will arrive on the scene at a time when humanity has never been in more desperate conditions. I mean, just think about this briefly. If in an instantaneous moment, millions and millions of Christians disappear off the globe, people are going to be pretty freaked out. Where did they all go? What happened? So people are freaked out over that. On top of it, the Bible describes somewhere in that same time period, Ezekiel 38 and 39, this incredible invasion that is going to happen as a, a federation of nations joining together with Russia in the north will come down and invade Israel, and there will be this incredible war that will happen in the Middle East, and humanity, understand, they will be craving for someone to step in and to fix the chaos that's going on on the planet at that time. Millions of people have disappeared. There's this horrific war happening in the Middle East. Who can solve our problems? We need a savior, a deliverer to rescue us. Daniel 9.27 says that the Antichrist will even make a covenant or peace treaty with the nation of Israel that will allow them to rebuild their temple that they want to rebuild there in the nation of Israel. So imagine this, a political leader who's able to finally solve the Middle East conflict and resolve all tensions between Jews and hostile Arab nations and bring unity there and peace as he lets Israel rebuild their temple somehow. Daniel chapter 8, referring to the Antichrist, says this, he will be a master of intrigue, he will be very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and succeed in whatever he does. He will cause deceit to prosper and consider himself superior, and when people feel secure, he will destroy many. See, he conquers by peaceful persuasiveness, giving a false sense of assurance. And then, of course, as we'll see in our study, halfway through the tribulation, he will turn the tables and he will unleash his inner monster. And Revelation 13 will describe some of that to us. He will demand to be worshipped as God. He will turn against the Jewish people. He will control all the food and punish everyone on the planet who will not give strict allegiance to him as a global leader. And this man, this false Christ, being possessed by the devil, will be the ultimate imposter who has deceived all of humanity very charismatically and persuasively, but then he will unleash the ruin and destruction of horrible suffering on all of humanity. Now, that's just the first seal. You excited for a few more? And that you're not going to be here if you know the Lord? And if you don't know the Lord, maybe by the end of the study, you'll be ready to receive Jesus. <laughs> Verse 3, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature, another one of the angelic beings, spoke forth, come and see what happens at the second seal. Another horse, is my time up? My arm's going off, not mine. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and, half, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. So as the second seal is open, we see the emergence now of the second rider, and this rider comes forth on a red horse. Very picturesque, red being the color of blood or bloodshed. And so this now brings about an outbreak of tremendous violence and killing upon the earth through murder, through warfare. 
the red horse, notice it says, as this rider comes forth, this red horse rider is authorized somehow, notice verse 4 says, to take peace away from the earth, so that not God begins to kill people, but it says so that people begin to kill one another. So peace is taken away from the earth, humanity with a sword-like attitude, again, bloodshed and warfare begin to just severely become barbaric and kill one another. Part of the tribulation will bring a time of sudden and heightened violence as the different phases of the tribulation period unfold. People on earth at a stage in that will begin to severely in ways like never before unravel in their barbaric cruelty and there will be a time of bloodshed on the earth like never before. As things unravel and lawlessness abounds on the earth, there will be unrestrained murder and warfare and violence on the planet like never before, rampant bloodshed, total lawlessness. Again, notice it's saying that this angelic creature, it seems, who the horseman described, is going to be able to just simply take away peace. So as I emphasized... This is not God killing people on the earth. This is God just taking away peace and letting humanity do what they do in their wicked, evil intentions in their hearts. And humanity begins to kill one another on the planet. And again, as that restraining force of the church is removed from the earth and the church brings about on the earth what? Some degree of love and peace and forgiveness, and kindness, and reconciliation, and relationships, that's all gone now. Every person with that kind of an attitude in their heart is removed from the planet. And now you have a bunch of people left on the planet who their conscience is completely unrestrained. The Holy Spirit is not working in the conscience of man to, in a sense, stop them from acting out any longer. And the fullness of man's brutal, evil nature in barbaric cruelty is just unleashed all over the planet. And in a way like never before, with no restraint on murder, no restraint on gang warfare, no restraint on wars and battles and domestic violence and warfare and terrorism. Granted, are these things already happening on the planet now? Yes, but can I remind you, this is the restrained version. The restrained version. You know, I just was driving yesterday. As I left here yesterday morning, I went and spoke at a retreat down in the CIO area. And as I'm driving down the Garden State Parkway, I see a sign that says, notify anyone if you suspect terrorism. I thought, well, that's encouraging. I'm just driving through the Jersey Shore here. Notify anyone if you suspect terrorism. I just got a word from the Lord. That's pretty discouraging. But again, this is the generation that we're already living in. And the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, in the last days, perilous times will come. And it goes on to say, men will be lovers of themselves, unloving, unforgiving. And then it says this, without self-control and brutal, brutal, barbaric, like savage animals. So in the tribulation, murder and warfare and killing and violence will go out of control. There will no longer be any restraint or intervention convicting the conscience of men, and it will be a time of great danger, and it will be very deadly to live on this earth. Verse 5, he goes on to say, and when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature, another angel say, come and see. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. So as the third seal is broken, here we see described another thing that will come to pass during the time of the tribulation, and it refers to severe economic collapse, which will lead to major food shortage and starvation and hunger. Here it describes in our verses now a black horse coming forth, indicating very dark times. A very difficult period of severe food lack and rationings and hunger. It pictures an outbreak, I believe, of global famine, economic collapse on the earth. You notice he's describing here a pair of scales 
there in verse 5. A pair of scales, that's the merchant balances in the ancient culture. Scales were used for how they did business transactions, how they bought and sold things. Scales were how they determined food prices and purchased food. So this next judgment portrays the unraveling of world economies, of global markets crashing and failing, and the collapse of all global economies, which cause major supply issues and food shortages and problems of hunger. And see, because all those things are connected, like a domino. They're all interconnected. Notice he seeks to describe how bad the conditions will be there in verse 6 by saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now, if I can help you understand what's being described, it's kind of described the severity of the economic collapse and problem and how bad there's a food shortage and a supply problem. A quart of wheat was about enough to make a loaf of bread. A denarius is the common day's wage for a laborer. We know that from the Gospels. So what's being described here is a time period when a person will have to work an entire day to purchase the ingredients just for one loaf of bread. A whole day's work is what it requires to purchase one loaf of bread. Now, if I could just briefly illustrate kind of generically, if a person makes $50,000 a year working Monday to Friday, that means they make about $192 a day. So this is describing a time period where things will become so horrific, the economy's collapsing, financial things falling apart and meltdown, food shortages, supply loss, where what it's describing, in essence, if we could think in our own mind, a loaf of bread costing $192. And you thought inflation was bad. A loaf of bread. How do you survive in such conditions? How do you feed a family in such conditions? Severe food shortages, rationing going on of food, price gouging. You know, in the United States of America, we're probably the most prosperous country in the world. There is one year of grain reserves. This is going to be something that there is an outbreak in such a way, and think of it as the success of things unfold, outbreaks of violence and war and murder and killing. People are stealing supplies, violently attacking one another, ruining property, destroying lands, you know, going in, pillaging stores. Imagine the famine and the difficulty and multiply that many times over as it's unfolding globally. And people are behaving in out-of-control ways because economies have failed. Things are spiraling out of control. There is no solution. Everyone's money is lost. Everyone is severely in the same place. And then add on to that, the Bible makes it clear the Antichrist will control food supplies and everyone's ability to buy and sell. And he will be in complete control of that on a global scale. It will be a time of starvation and food rationing that has never been imaginable before of suffering and scarcity. What's interesting is you notice the end of verse 6, there's that little reference there, but do not harm the oil and the wine. Those were luxury items. Now, I don't know, perhaps that's an indication as a representation of the wealthy, the oil and the wine, how the Antichrist will keep select few individuals, himself and his buddies, very enriched while everyone else is starving and killing one another. And that the oil and the wine will be kept, and there'll be this vicious cycle of greed among the Antichrist and a few select wealthy people selfishly refusing the starvation to aid and help others who are killing themselves because of a lack of food for survival. Fourth and finally, we see the last seal in verse 7 and 8. It says, and I opened the fourth seal, or he, excuse me, opened the fourth seal, and I heard the voice again of a living creature, one of the angels, saying, come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it, this horseman, was called Death, and his buddy, Hades, followed him, and power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword, hunger, death, and by the beasts of the earth. So as the fourth seal is open, the fourth rider comes forth, and this rider comes forth, it says there on verse 8, a pale horse. 
The Greek term is, is chloris, and it describes a greenish, yellowish color. The idea is sickly looking. And the representation here clearly is pale with illness. The fourth rider in the fourth seal brings a time of severe global sickness and pestilence and illness over the entire planet. A great outbreak of infectious diseases, global pandemics. You notice this rider happens to have as his name Mr. Death. That's a bad name. And his rider that comes along with him is Mr. Hades or hell, the place of the dead. What's interesting is it describes this outbreak of great illness. That term there at the end of verse 8, when he describes killing and death coming by the beasts, that term beasts at the end of verse 8, the Greek term is therion, and it refers to any form of a creature that is dangerous or venomous, but it doesn't specify or regulate the size of the creature. So it doesn't necessarily mean that this is just big, dangerous predator animals. This could be therion, a reference perhaps to small, dangerous, venomous creatures, things like the threat of microscopic bacterias and things that are able as creatures like microorganisms to destroy health, things like viruses that cannot be controlled, that aren't resilient to treatments immune deficiency diseases, flesh-eating bacterias, outbreaks of flus and viruses. Remember, Jesus warned of pestilences. That term Jesus used speaks of infectious, deadly diseases. So there will be this outbreak globally of widespread death amongst the world because of incredible global illnesses, sicknesses, diseases breaking out that can't be controlled and that cannot be managed or resolved, bringing great widespread death. You know, of course, we just went through the you know global you know kind of COVID nineteen pandemic, where sadly almost seven million people died as the result of the COVID nineteen pandemic. But can I say to you, as we think that that was just this unimaginable thing, the bubonic plague itself took seventy five to two hundred million people from the planet. We lost almost seven through the COVID-19. Bubonic plague, they estimate 75 to 200 million people. The Spanish flu, we know the Spanish flu that happened prior in history, killed upwards to 20 million people off of the planet. So the COVID-19 pandemic, that was barely anything. Even in comparison to what, and I don't mean to diminish that in any heartless way at all, but it was in comparison to what we've even already experienced as the practicing labor pains, the bubonic plague, the Spanish flu. These things took out, you know, 10 times the number of people that the COVID-19 virus took out. And yet the Bible is describing a time where those things describing right there, they will be like child's play in comparison to what's going to come. Notice the widespread death toll from all these various forms of chaos described in all of our verses thus far. It says there, verse 8, the power was given over one-fourth of the entire earth's population to kill. One-fourth. So that means 25% of the world's population will die in a very short period in that time of the tribulation. And let me help you see that again. The current world population right now stands somewhere like about 8 billion people. So this means the death toll within a short window of time in the midst of the tribulation, 25% of the world's population, somewhere around 2 billion people, not million, 2 billion people will die globally around the planet. Imagine that type of a death toll. If I can put it into a picture for you, that would be the equivalent of every man, woman, and child in the continents of all of North America, the United States and Canada, all of Central America, all of South America, and the majority of Europe all being dead at once around the globe. That's what the death toll will be like in the midst of this being poured out upon humanity. Now, can I just say, as I know you're super encouraged having been in church this morning... <laughs> I'm going to land the plane here. Help me effectively land it. As we consider what's going to happen in this dreadful tribulation period as God judges, 
and how quickly, please hear me, how quickly God can take things away from humanity. We should be utterly grateful for how gracious the Lord is being to us right now on this planet. Just think about how much lying and satanic deception is being restrained. And look, it's bad. I know it's bad. But think how much is being restrained, how much lying and deception. God in his mercy, even holding back right now. How God is allowing us to enjoy some extent of relative peace on this planet still. I mean, it is horrible to see the bloodshed that happens on this planet, the senseless murders and you know, mass shootings and the abortion industry and, and how people are murdering each other in inner cities and the wars. That, but this is the restrained version. How much God is still, if he were to let humanity go, he's giving us mercy, letting us experience some degree of peace. How God is providing sufficient food and means to live. You know, we just think, oh, it's so easy. And, and, and in an instant, in an instant, God could just take it all away, as well as perhaps it hits a little closer to home. How mercifully God is protecting and controlling our health and how absolutely frail our health is. How frail, just a thread, all of our health is in God preserving us and keeping us. Look, we shouldn't be walking around in panic and fear and terror about this and that. Oh, what if something happens to me? What if something happens to me? This and worry about food and worry about getting killed and, and worry about my health. L listen, do you know how much God is mercifully restraining and protecting us? We need to trust the Lord, keep our eyes on the Lord, and as we watch the labor pains happening, realize, look up, our redemption is drawing now. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed, and now's not a time to be fooling around as a Christian. Now's a time to be serving Jesus and living right and maximizing impact and seeking to win lost souls because we realize, oh my goodness, by the grace of God, I'm getting to escape that, but that's what's on the horizon for people. And when we look at what's happening in our world, who knows how much time is left and that it would give us a compassion for the world around us. Let's stand together. Let's pray.